I think Bernie Sanders got to go to Canada with Sarah Cliff, yeah. not the other way around. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined today by Ezra Klein and Sarah Cliff. Hi, Matt. Hey, what's, what's going on? I'm not saying hello. Fuck you, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, off to a good start here on the weeds. <laughs> Another great episode. This is what happens for killing my white paper. That's true. I, I did. Uh, I'm taking responsibility for this with all of the Bob Mueller extravaganza, which we will talk about, and all the excitement of Sarah Cliff going to Canada with Bernie Sanders to learn about the Canadian healthcare system. I did not have time to read the white paper and have asked that we delay it to next week. It's a good white paper. It though. is a good white paper. That's it's, why I want to delay because I don't just want to bullshit. It's my not white dead. Paper. It's just taking it. We're going to give it, give it, give it its due. Give it, give its, it due. its due. Okay. But this week, Bob Mueller. Bob Mueller. I've heard of him. Can I? Can I jump into the Bob Mueller stuff? Let's hear about it. Okay. So Bob Mueller on Monday released. Uh, some indictments of Paul Manafort and Richard Gates. Uh, Paul Manafort was Donald Trump's campaign chair, uh, and Richard Gates was his colleague um, in his consulting, lobbying, international crime firm, <laughs> and then also his colleague on the Trump campaign. And and there was a long list of indictments that ranged from you know improper lobbying reporting to huge amounts of money laundering. I mean, they really threw the book at these guys. And then there was also a guilty plea by a guy who, who people had not really been following that much named George Papadopoulos. Uh, and I really hope I'm saying that name right. And that was a really interesting thing because what it turned out is going on there is this guy has been cooperating with Mueller, it appears, for three months. He was caught lying to investigators about something very, very profound, which is that he became a foreign policy advisor to Donald Trump. He became a foreign policy advisor, I believe it was in March, if I'm not misremembering the timeline here. And he said that there was a professor uh, who was very deeply tied into the Russian government, who, who he knew that at the time. And this professor came to him and said, hey, we, the Russians, have a lot of dirt on Hillary Clinton in the form of thousands of emails. And Papadopoulos, this came out, maybe it was actually on a, it, it implied to me, I thought, that they possibly heard this on one of these phones they were tapping, but whatever it was, it came out. They talked to him about it. The, the FBI did. He lied to them. He said, no, I talked to this guy before I became a Trump foreign policy advisor. It's all just a big coincidence. And then um, they found out and they caught him and he turned in a guilty plea rather than go to jail and appears to have turned and is working with Mueller. Some people think maybe he's been wearing a wire or otherwise recording conversations. I want to talk about two things here. There, there are at least two good angles. But one that, that I'd like to maybe start with, the, the second is what happens? Does Trump fire Bob Mueller? What would happen if he did fire Bob Mueller? Because this investigation is beginning to look pretty bad for them. But the other that I, that I do want to talk about is just how insane the story is now to believe that there is no collusion. So we know, and this is a partial list of things we know, we know that one of Trump's foreign policy advisors knew about the emails from Russia in advance. He knew about them after they had been hacked, but long before they were ever released, three months before the DNC emails were released, six months before the Podesta emails were released. We know Roger Stone, another Trump advisor, appeared to have foreknowledge of the Podesta emails given things he tweeted and said publicly. We know that when Russian, a Russian government lawyer was said to have incriminating information on Hillary Clinton, not only Donald Trump Jr., but also Paul Manafort and Jared Kushner all took the meeting. And Trump Jr. said, if it's what you say it is, I really love it and would love to have it particularly later in the summer. By the way, later in the summer is when the emails ultimately come out. We know that Donald Trump himself, um, amidst all of this, after emails had begun coming out, goes out on a rally stage and asks Russia to hack more emails. He says that he wants Russia to find the 33,000 deleted emails from Hillary Clinton's tenure at state. We know that after Donald Trump wins the election, he fires James Comey out of fear of this Russia investigation. And we also know, of course, Jeff Sessions was forgetting uh, meetings he had with Russians. I mean, there's a lot of other circumstantial evidence here. But the final thing is, we know that the crime at the center of all this really did take place. Russia really did hack all these emails from Democratic-affiliated um, groups and people. They really did release them in ways built to help the Trump campaign. They really did do social media efforts on behalf of the Trump campaign. So you have these two organizations, the Trump operation in Russia. They're trying to do the same thing. They have foreknowledge of what the other is doing. They clearly are interested in cooperating with each 
each other on both sides. Um, and there are a lot of things where it's like we don't quite have the smoking gun, but we have like a ton of possible avenues of cooperation. I mean, there's also the weird thing where Jared Kushner tries to set up a new comms line with Russia that the American government can't listen in on. It would just be amazing. Like, it would be amazing at this point if nobody ever took the final step of collusion. Like, it would be the most Mr. Magoo-like phenomenal <laughs> situation if nobody got their fucking act together to actually collude, given how hard they were all trying all the time, constantly. And, like, that is what Donald Trump wants us to believe. And it is just, in, in like, the literal <laughs> um, use of the word, like, pretty unbelievable. It is just very hard to look at the story and say somehow they all got this close repeatedly and everything happened the way you would expect it to happen if there was collusion, but just like nobody ever quite made that final mark. Right. Like it seems very clear at this point. We certainly have evidence of openness to collusion, like like the the meetings, the idea like you would want to take a meeting with this professor or with the guy um, that Donald Trump Jr. was meeting with. There's certainly an openness to this idea. And I think the like remain like that seems pretty clear at this point from all the reporting we've seen over the past few months from the indictments that were unsealed yesterday. And I think, like, the key question is, like, did it go further than that? Or was there just this openness that, like, they couldn't get across the finish line? In any case, it's pretty damning, right? Like, that there is, like, even if it seems like if there wasn't the collusion, like, what happened there between that openness to do it, but like the inability to get it done. And maybe like the most generous reading is someone decided, oh, wait, like we actually shouldn't do this. This is not how we should run our campaign. But it seems like more plausible. It was like just the inability to get something done or or it actually happened. Or it is happened. the other <laughs> thing that is going on there. Here's the one thing I, I do want to say is that I, I feel like Trump and Team Trump has been very clever in setting, using the word collusion so many times that it has become this, like, psychological anchor. And, like, now we can't help but talk about collusion all the time. Collusion, collusion, collusion. But collusion in this context, it has no legal meaning, right? And even in its ordinary language meaning, it is um, inappropriate. What collusion means is that you have multiple entities that are supposed to be competing right? Maybe they are firms competing in the marketplace, or they are sports teams competing in a league. But instead of engaging in the competition that they are supposed to be doing, they are violating the rules and secretly collaborating together. They are colluding. Um, you could imagine a charge of collusion being leveled against, say, John Kasich's presidential campaign and Ted Cruz's presidential campaign, right? Maybe instead of competing out in the open, they were secretly colluding against Donald Trump. Donald Trump and the government of Russia are not competitors in any sense. So the whole idea of collusion doesn't, like, make clear sense to me. So we're really talking about, well, okay, was there communication between Trump's campaign and the Russian government? But there was. There clearly was. That's already been proven. So if by collusion we mean communication, they are guilty. It has been proven. We can go home. We can impeach Trump tomorrow. If we mean something else, then it's like, well, what what is it that we mean? Because one trick we're going to get into here is they're saying, okay, it may be the case that Paul Manafort was a criminal who broke lots and lots of laws and who should go to jail for his many, many crimes. But those crimes were not collusion. But then we're going to say, it may be the case that Jeff Sessions had lots and lots of secret communication with high-level Russian government officials, but that's not illegal. So now we're in this, like, dance where it's like all the crimes are not collusion, but all the collusion isn't illegal, so secretly we're innocent. And, like, that's not how the world <laughs> works. Like, I I've been shocked. I am always shocked and, frankly, like, a little appalled by how eager, just basically hungry for sources political journalists are to, like, bend over backwards to justify things for Trump. And lots of people were taking very seriously this notion that it was somehow okay that Paul Manafort was engaged in 
a years-long crime spree because the crimes he was found guilty of were not, quote-unquote, collusion with Russia, whatever the fuck that means. Like, that's not how criminal investigations work. You're the target for the investigation. Also, he's not found, we should just say, not found guilty yet. Indicted. Sure. Indicted. But I mean, look, if he's innocent, he's innocent, right? Yeah. If, if the case for Paul Manafort is he did not evade taxes, he did not break foreign agent registration law. He did not money launder money. Like, that's great, right? Bob Mueller is just a psychopath <laughs> flinging around charges. But there's no, like, special, oh, that wasn't the right crime exemption to things, right? Like, if your campaign manager is a criminal, if your national security advisor is a criminal, if you're... Oh, just, Flynn. We've not talked about Flynn. Right? It's like, I just... I think, to an extent, some of this collusion stuff is, like a little bit of a red herring. And the Papadopoulos thing really gets to it, right? Because he, the crime he pled guilty to was lying to an FBI agent. So you could say about even Papadopoulos, you could say, well, there was no illegal collusion there because, okay, there wasn't. What there was was there was collusion, which was legal, and then there was lying to the FBI to cover it up, which is illegal. And you know what? Bad luck for you, George. But like, it's just like the crimes are the crimes. So I want to make a couple points here because one, I think that we should look at Papadopoulos and um, Manafort and so on a little bit differently than you're framing it here. So what, what you're saying is that, you know, they've got all these charges against Manafort that aren't really related to the campaign. They've got this charge against Papadopoulos that is like, you know, maybe not a big deal, but what he admitted to them is a big deal. I think the way a lot of people are reading these these charge lists um, and and that Papadopoulos had a plea bargain uh, for for a low level crime that he's pleading guilty to is Manafort and Gates have not turned yet. I mean, may, they may never turn, but they are not cooperating with Mueller's investigation. They are not rolling over on people above them. So Mueller has thrown everything at them, like so many charges. It is entirely possible they will go to jail for a long time and. That's scary. I mean, Gates has young kids. Like they, they have laundered money. Like they may not be able to use that laundered money to pay off their legal bills. Like it's scary. He's trying, in in most people's estimation, to turn them. And then simultaneously, he releases Papadopoulos thing, where he shows that if you cooperate with him, which Papadopoulos is, it's very likely you can get a charge that will just be a probation. Right? You shouldn't lie to FBI investigators again. But you did a nice job working with us after, so we're going to let bygones be bygones and, you know, do some community service and get on with your life. So one thing I just want to say here is that what is on these lists right now is not the end of the investigation. It's a tactic in the ongoing investigation. The the other point worth making, I think there is a definition here, whether the right word for it is collusion, but there is something people are looking for that's reasonably specific, which is, did the Trump administration have foreknowledge and cooperation with Russia's criminal activities to influence the election. So Russia illegally hacked into DNC uh, servers. They illegally operated a phishing scheme to get John Podesta's emails away from him and then release them through WikiLeaks. Did the Trump administration know about that? Did they provide them advice on how to do it, how to release it? Were they accomplices in what is fundamentally, I don't know if crime is exactly the right word, but, but an act of foreign espionage or, or foreign aggression. And similarly, with some of the other stuff like the social media buys and whatever, was there collaboration on things that Russia is not allowed to do under U.S. law or is not considered to be allowed to do. If all that happened, if Jeff Sessions met with the Russian ambassador to talk about Ukraine, I mean, whatever, like that's actually fair enough. Um, And if all that happened is that somehow they had a bunch of meetings where they talked about how they didn't like Hillary Clinton, but nothing came of it, well, so be it. Um, That's also, I think, not there. But Russia did things that were not they're not okay. They're not considered okay in the American political system. They're not considered okay under American law. Like we impose sanctions on them in response to this. And if the Trump if the Trump operation knew about them and cooperated with them in advance while these crimes were happening, instead of going to the FBI, instead of going to the CIA, instead of going to some kind of authority and say a foreign government is committing cyber espionage to help us win an election, then you're in a much more serious space. And I think that's what people are looking for here. I don't how to prove it is, is difficult, right? But that's I think why they're trying to get people like Manafort and Gates to turn, because um, maybe they would know. So one thing I want to talk a little bit about it's actually a piece you wrote today, Ezra, about the response from Congress on this, which has been, I think I, I don't know if weak is the right word to describe it or non-existent, but I wanted. I, I use the word cowardice. Okay, yeah, cowardice <laughs> would be a good one. Um, so 
one of the things we've been watching is Congress kind of react to this unfold on the uh, unfolding. And it's, I don't know if it's shocking because it's like such a pattern of behavior. But even as these, you know, big things roll out, there is just no reaction or grappling from Capitol Hill. So um, Paul Ryan, um, the House Speaker, he was asked about this. He told reporters, I really don't have anything to add other than nothing is going to derail what we're going, what we're doing in Congress. Um, you checked out Ezra, um, <laughs> Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's website this morning. No, which, last night at 8.30 p.m. Sorry, 8.30 p.m. 8.30 Monday night. Monday night. So maybe it has changed. I have not checked it out during the taping of this podcast. The lead story on Mitch McConnell's website is McConnell on IRS targeting during Obama administration. There is no mention of Mueller. And, and like you can you can imagine a different world which is not, you know, Republicans calling for Trump to be impeached, but a world where they say like, yeah, this is troubling and like mm-hmm. if we if Mueller wants our help, we will help him. Like if there are things he needs, we find these we find these indictments troubling and we are willing to do whatever we can as Congress to to help speed along this investigation. But you don't see any of that. And you could see the political case for something like that for some level of self-preservation, of like not tethering yourself to the president, of not getting caught up in these sort of things. And even, oh, you mentioned the there's legislation to stop President Trump from being able to fire Mueller, which is something else you could get behind. You could endorse that. You could say, we think Mueller should finish this investigation. And I think we accept a lot of this because we've become so used to the partisanship of D.C. And we've gotten very, very used to this level of cowardice where you kind of don't speak out against Trump and these like investigations on the Republican side. But it really gets rid of a key check in the government on what the president is doing. And it is somewhat surprising that you wouldn't want to distance yourself in some way from this to at least like say something in favor of continuing this investigation. You don't have to go as far as calling for the president's impeachment, but you're really not seeing that from the people who lead Congress. And I don't know. I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more about yeah, that since you wrote about it today. I, I'd, I'd be happy to. <laughs> <laughs> I, one of the points I make in this piece that I feel very strongly about is that something that Paul Ryan in particular is saying, and, and that both Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan imply at different times, is that what they are trying to do is protect congressional prerogatives in action in the face of this constant distraction from Donald Trump in the media. So Ryan like literally says that in that radio interview, which is, which is really beyond parody, right? You can imagine an SNL Paul Ryan, like where these mounting things are happening on a radio interview and somebody's constantly says, uh, Paul Ryan, do you have any comment on the fact that a bunch of the president's campaign manager was just indicted? And he says, I'm, yes, I do have a comment. Nothing will distract Congress from what he... <laughs> But here's the thing. Congress's job in the Constitution and in the design of the American political system is not to pass tax reform. Like, that is not the main thing it does. Um, It does, obviously, a lot of things. It comes first in the Constitution. It is the most powerful branch of our government. But one of the core things it does is act as part of this checks and balances system that, that, that the founders derived. Um, And they created a system like this in part because they were afraid of monarchs and also they were afraid of the public. And they believed the public could elect a demagogue or a knave. And if that happened, you would need some way of containing the the, the damage. And so Congress has given all these powers, this real ability to contain, to exercise oversight. I mean, a, a, a president who is at odds with Congress is truly hamstrung. Um, can be impeached for that matter, right? Congress. But even has we sold, saw this with Obama, like in the end of his. Yeah, Congress presidency. has sole power to impeach a president. Like Congress could get rid of Trump tomorrow if they wanted. Um, and so Paul Ryan's saying that amidst a presidency where he fucking knows perfectly well that this guy is really problematic, that what happened with Russia, if it were going on the other side, if we're going on any side, Paul Ryan was part of the Mitt Romney campaign in 2012 that said Russia is America's primary geopolitical threat. But I don't think, you know, if this were, if this I, were not I want to fin- okay. finish my point. He would not be sitting there saying Congress's role. It, 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 I mean, he does not believe it. Like, he is being 
cowardly. And and something I was saying in the piece is like, there are these like kind of mounting daily, like little moments of silence and cowardice. And it's like, you don't respond to the small Trump tweet or the small outrage or the dumb thing Trump did. And so it's like, you begin to create this thing where like, you're not responding. And then the small things mount up and it makes it harder to respond to big things. And you, you get in like a gambler on a losing streak where it's like, you've excused so much that in order to try to absolve yourself in the eyes of history, you, you somehow need a big win. Like you need tax reform. You need something that turns it around for you. And he's not going to get that, I don't think. Not big enough to, to, to deal with what he's doing here. But also, like, we need to have a Congress that exercises oversight that tells the executive, no, you can't fire Mueller because if you do, we'll impeach you. Or just we pass legislation that says you can't do it. It would be good for them to do it, too. This is a point Matt made in a piece the other day. Like, they don't want to deal with the aftermath of firing Mueller. That's very distracting from tax reform. There's so much more they could do. They could have been doing from the beginning. And they have like systematically tried to say it is not Congress's job to check an executive who we all know is out of control, riddled with conflicts of interest, and appears to have possibly won the presidency by collaborating with a hostile foreign power. And like that is not Congress's job. It's a profound act of cowardice and institutional betrayal on behalf of the Republican leadership. I, I think it's worth quoting uh, at some length what Paul Ryan had to say uh, back in March of 2014 uh, when Russia originally uh, invaded Ukraine. He said, well, I think it's one more chapter in what happens when you project weakness um, abroad through your foreign policy, through your defense policy, and aggression fills that vacuum. And I think we're seeing that. The fear I have is that all the domestic problems the president has created. That was Obama. I know we can fix those. I know we can fix it, the budget, the economy, health care, if we win elections and put these good ideas that we're offering in place. It's the lasting damage to foreign policy and world affairs that's going to be a deeper hole we'll have to dig out of as a country. And, and I really worry that he has put our foreign policy and our defense policy on such a bad trajectory that it's going to, be, it's going to, it's going to be, have huge consequences that are going to last a long time in this world. And I think the moral of that is that, like, Paul Ryan is not cowardly. Paul Ryan is courageous. Paul Ryan, for years, has worked. He has worked tirelessly to make it so that rich people have more money and poor children have less food and medicine. He loves those causes, and he believes in them really passionately. And so to advance those causes, he does amazing things, right? He says at one point, I am going to have the United States government default on the national debt to advance my agenda of helping rich people get richer, right? He says, I'm going to write a health care bill. It's going to pull at 27%, but I'm going to push it through because I've been dreaming since we were doing keggers in college of making it harder for poor kids to get medical care. In 2014, when Russia invades a foreign country, he says, I'm going to launch partisan attack on the president of the United States to help win the election. But my whole view on this is bullshit because when the president comes in from my party at the behest of the Russians, refusing to implement any sanction policy, I'm not just going to say nothing. I am going to be actively, daily involved in a massive cover-up. I'm going to time and time again block House floor votes on disclosure of the president's tax reform. I'm going to set up new House investigative committees to go after Hillary Clinton, right? He did that last week, right? So it's just, it's not that he's dodging these questions. When he goes on the radio, people are like, what do you have to say about this? He's like, oh, I got nothing to say. But he has a lot to say about it, right? He's working with Trey Gowdy. He's plotting. He's like, how can we muddy the waters on this? How can we help build the rationale for firing Bob Mueller, right? He's doing it. And it's because he really, really, truly believes that it's sad. It's a gross injustice that rich people do not have more money. And like, it's it's not cowardice. It's it's amazing acts of boldness and like vision, creativity, like the likes of which it's it's hard to comprehend. And and I think to me that's just like it's fundamental, you know. Like there are cowards out there, but there is no downside risk to Paul Ryan saying Trump shouldn't fire Bob Mueller. He would be widely and universally acclaimed. He is taking the risky, all downside course of action because he's taking a stand for something he believes in. Galactic brain. <laughs> that's our podcast. I think that's our. I think that's that topic. I got. I got nothing to add on that. 
These days, we're living in an on-demand world. Uh, practically anything you get, uh, you know, when you want it. I mean, you think about our podcast, right? I mean, you, you listen to the weeds when you want, when it's convenient to you, where it's convenient to you. Uh, but you still go into the post office and dealing with, with very limited hours. And and why why put up with that when you can get postage on demand with Stamps.com? Uh, so anything you can do at the post office, you can do right from your desk with Stamps.com. Uh, most importantly, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or any package using your own computer or printer. Unlike the post office, Stamps.com never closes. So you know, it's, it's Veterans Day. You got to get stuff out. It's late on a Tuesday. You got to get stuff out. Saturday, no problem. You get postage whenever you need it, 24-7. You don't need to plan out your whole route. Uh, you just like, when you realize you need some more postage, you go on, you hit some buttons, you use the printer. It's dead simple and it's really great. It's really convenient. Um, so what you need to know, if I mean, if this sounds interesting to you, you use promo code WEEDS for a special offer. It's a four-week trial. It includes postage and a digital scale. Uh, so don't wait. You go to stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the little radio microphone at the top of the homepage, type in weeds. That's stamps.com, and enter weeds. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. So Sarah, I understand you, you recently returned to your homeland of Canada. I did. I went to Toronto. It was nice city. of you to take Bernie Sanders with you. I did. He actually, um, we took the same flight. He sat in row 21. I sat in row 22. Um, so he was not able to have any secret conversations because a reporter was sitting right behind him. Were you literally right behind him? Um, I was diagonal behind him. Did so. he recline his seat? <laughs> he did at the very beginning. But then I'm he... pro seat reclining. Oh, really? I'm yeah. very anti-seat reclining, but I won't. Anyways, in the social utopia, we all get to recline our seats. <laughs> no, no, we all sit with our seats forward <laughs> and we follow the rules. Um, so yeah, so I was one of four reporters who went with Bernie Sanders to Toronto, Ontario this past weekend for um, what his staff called, I believe the official name was the, um, I don't remember the official name. It was like the Bi-Country Canadian Healthcare Learning Tour. The idea was that Senator Sanders has proposed a single-payer bill and that now he is going to go to Canada to refine his ideas learn about the Canadian system, like get a sense of what this looks like on the ground. According to his staff, they don't think he has done a trip like this since like the early 90s when he was a very new senator. And um, there's some footage from like Vermont public TV of him like talking about this trip he took to Canada. So this was like the first international healthcare learning tour that Sanders has um, has gone on since he has introduced this bill. And I went along with him with for it. And so the idea is basically Canada has a single-payer healthcare system of the sort that Bernie wants to bring to America, so we should all see how amazing Canada is. Yes, that's, yes. That's the basic. So, so I will say, you know, Bernie Sanders is a big fan of Canadian healthcare. It wasn't like this learning tour was like, holy shit, there are these big problems. <laughs> it was like, it's a great system. I really like it. At some point, he was this asked, is about how we can learn about how great. Canada yes. Is. <laughs> At some point, he was asked, you know, what did you learn on this trip? And he said, well, the Canada is so innovative. So it wasn't like he learned that there were long wait times or rationing. But I think <laughs> here on the weeds, we can learn about the Canadian system. We can talk a little bit about what it is that Sanders is proposing. And I think there is actually one moment from the trip I found quite interesting. I think the things he learned about were more about the values of Canada that let a single-payer system exist and that those values might not necessarily exist in um, in the U.S. And I think this is something Senator Sanders and I disagree on. He thinks those values are there. I am less sure of it. But what should we talk about first? Like how so, Canada so actually, works? I would actually or? love for you to, to talk about one thing that I thought was really interesting in in your piece first, which is that I think listening to this, and this was actually my assumption when I heard it, was that the idea that Bernie Sanders went to Canada because it is the nearest universal single-payer-ish healthcare system around, right? Which that might actually be true. Mm -hmm. But a point you make is that given the set of international models that are out there, what he wants to do is specifically like what Canada does and specifically not like what Germany or Great Britain or the Netherlands or France do. And so I'd love for you to actually talk a little bit about that because I do think it's interesting. I think people can kind of like imagine there's all these other systems out there that are sort of the same and work. And then there's our system, which is crappy and doesn't. But Canada is specific in a lot of ways. And Bernie Sanders has specifically chosen it as a model. Yeah. So Sanders definitely will talk about the idea of proximity. He constantly talks about how Canada is 50 miles from where he lives in Vermont, and we should learn about it as our neighbor. But I think it's actually something 
much deeper than that. I think Canada is a country that in its healthcare system really prizes equity and equal access above most other things. And that makes it actually very different from a lot of single-payer systems. I think one of the defining features of the Canadian system is you cannot buy private insurance to get better or faster access to healthcare. So there are a lot of healthcare systems, the one in Britain, the one in Australia, where everyone is enrolled in a basic healthcare plan, but then you can buy a private plan because maybe you want to stay in a private hospital room when you go to the hospital, or maybe you want to get out of the queue and get to the doctor a little bit faster. And Canada has been so resolute in not allowing those private plans. It says everyone is in the same pool. It is illegal to sell benefits that compete with the public plan. You cannot skip the queue. You cannot get your nicer room. Everyone is getting the exact same plan. And that really sets it apart from a lot of other healthcare systems. And I think it really appeals to Bernie Sanders when, um, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, two Sanders on this learning tour, and he seems to think they have really gotten it right. And there is a lot of concern about the possibility of a two-tiered system. Right now, there's this lawsuit that is expected to go up to the Canadian Supreme Court that is challenging this ban on private plans. It's brought by a um, a clinic out in British Columbia that wants to allow private plans. And it really is, it's a challenge to like the fundamental nature of Canadian healthcare. And a lot of people are quite worried that that would really change the system. They look at Australia, particularly the people who advocate for the Canadian system, and they really don't want a system like that. There's this one quote I love. Um, I read it ages ago in this book by this journalist, T.R. Reid, who visited, I think it was like eight or so countries, learning about their healthcare systems by getting his um, shoulder injury treated. And one scholar in Canada told him, you know, in Canada, we're fine with waiting. We just want to make sure the poor people and the rich people wait the same amount of time. And that's probably my favorite quote about the Canadian healthcare system. It really seems to summarize it super, super well. And it's it's worth dwelling on how sort of unusual that is, right? I mean, not just internationally, but sort of like conceptually, right? That when people, when Bernie Sanders talks about how there should be free college education for everybody, Mm -hmm. he's not saying that like we should make Stanford illegal, right? Mm -hmm. He's saying that the public should provide a free college education to people who want it, that it should be, there should be a floor of higher educational quality that is available. Um, but Canadian healthcare is like, and lots of foreign countries do that with healthcare, right? There's like a a universal healthcare minimum right. that everyone is entitled to. But in Canada, the floor is also a ceiling. Yeah, and there's just not in the U.S. Like we have lots of public services internationally. There are lots of public provision of different kinds of services, and it's it's rare to have a system where you say okay, the public is not only going to provide something on a universal basis to everyone. It's like we're not only going to have a public library system, but there's going to be no bookstores. So something that I think is interesting here, because we've brought up waiting times a couple times here, and that they're not something that got focused on in this trip, but I actually think there's something that we think about in a really poor way. Um, So a couple just quick points here. Canada and England get a lot of attention as foreign models for us because they're English-speaking and Canada's nearby. They have unusually bad waiting times internationally. France and Japan and Germany basically don't have waiting times. Um, and, and America does have waiting times too. So, But it is a case that Canada and Britain do have these waiting times. But I, I find our conversation about this like, like borderline insane. <laughs> so waiting lines are a form of rationing. Um, and you can, you know, some country, countries let you pay to skip them, but, but Canada mm-hmm. doesn't, right? The poor and the rich wait the same amount of time in theory. And in America, we have this other thing where we just have people who can't afford to get health insurance at all. And they don't show up as having any waiting time, but their wait was functionally like infinite, right? (laughs) And if you actually look at Commonwealth Fund surveys, I was just trying to pull the numbers up, but um, I have an old Washington Post post on this, but all of the graphs are broken, so I can't see what the numbers were. I but, might be able to fill them in. I've been reading but, the report But recently. basically, what, what I saw in that report was that if you look at the percentage of Canadians who had to wait and mm-hmm. the number of Americans who said they couldn't pay for some pay for a service they needed, they're actually pretty similar. Yeah. And so you, you were looking at, like, Canada does have these waiting times and America does have these people who just can't get health care. And then we say, oh, Canada's got these waiting times and this ration but in America, we don't. But no, in America, we do. We just do it by cost. And it's not like you get to 
get, it's not like we triage it by who needs care the most, which is in theory what Canada does. We triage it by who can pay, which is what we do. And it's not like you just have to wait a little bit longer as it is in Canada. Like sometimes you really don't get the service um, in America. You just don't take that medication. You don't go get that doctor's visit. Eventually, maybe you go to the ER. Um, but I just think we think about this in a really confused way. And it isn't, it's actually Canada would not be my choice for a system if I were, you know, just pasting an international system onto America. Like I like France is better. Like I think there are better models out there. And I, I think you can do this without these waiting times. But I don't know. The, the, the thing that is a problem about the, the Canadian system that always comes up is legitimately a worse problem in the American system. And we have just juked the data to not look at it clearly. Yeah, this came up a lot on the tour. Bernie Sanders actually brought a few American doctors who kept making the point that we actually just, we have, Canada has gotten pretty good at measuring its wait time. They really became a big challenge in like the 1990s, early 2000s. There is now in Ontario, where Toronto is, a public agency that tracks these things year over year. In the U.S., we just don't do that. Like, we, you have no public agency that's like, here is how long you wait for an MRI in the United States. And you have some people who have this like infinite wait. You have some people who are in different plans, getting to access to different things. So they definitely have more information about it. And I think one of the things, you know, a lot of people made the point, and the data on this really checks out, and I think was helpful for me to understand kind of the wait time challenge in Canada. The wait times for critical care aren't really as much of a challenge. We were talking to a lot of cardiac doctors, for example, and they said, you know, the wait time in their clinic is zero to one days. The challenge that that is real is the wait time for less urgent things. Um, for it, it was kind of interesting. A lot of Canadians were calling these things elective surgeries, but they were things like hip replacements and knee replacements, which are not like what I think of mm -hmm. as elective surgery. They are something that feels quite necessary, can be a um, real detriment, to, or, or cataracts are another area where Canada has some pretty big wait time challenges. And like, yes, you are probably not going to die from your cataracts, but being blind is a huge quality of life detriment. And those are the services where it seems like there's been more of a struggle to provide them. And it, it was interesting. I talked to this one doctor, Danielle Martin, who's kind of become, she had a few viral videos after testifying before um, the Senate a little bit about healthcare. And one of the things she said that she felt like made the Canadian system work is that Canadians accept sometimes, they, they will not always get what they want right away when it isn't urgent. They only they don't accept that because they're like good neighbors or like friendly, nice, polite Canadians. They accept it because when they do have an urgent need, the system will like spring into place and they will absolutely get the care that that they require. And she says as soon as it can't do that, the system really falls apart. That people are not just going to be like nice Canadians and just wait for, you know, their heart attack to be treated. That Canadians stop supporting the system when it can't deliver on those urgent needs. And they stop saying, oh, I'm okay waiting a little bit for things that are less urgent um, if, if they see that there are these really serious things that the system can't handle. But I think, um, you know, what, what we're seeing here is that there's a, there's a finite amount of medical provision in any country, right? And so in Canada, they attempt to allocate that by urgency, Right. So that's how you get the outcome that like really, really urgent problems get addressed quickly. Less urgent problems get addressed more slowly. In America, we allocate it by a price auction. Right. So that an issue that uh, you have the ability to spend a lot of money getting fixed will be addressed quickly. And an issue that you don't have that much money to spend on will be addressed slowly or possibly never. I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine who uh, does um children's psychiatric care in an emergency room, right? And so she has some people, you know, get sort of sent to her because there's a, an imminent medical emergency. Other people have just sort of had, need, they're trying to get free health care at, at the emergency room and they're like doing their best, but it's not very good, right? Like children's psychiatric needs in the United States are met very, very poorly uh, because there's high child poverty rate. And so we have just decided that Poor people's problems don't don't get much of a much of a priority. But here's what I'm curious about: since, since Canada, the the goal is to treat acute problems quickly, but someone has to make these decisions. And like, how how does it 
how does it work, right? Like, is Justin Trudeau sitting there being like, <laughs> well, we need to do cardiac stuff fast, but we'll slow down on the hip replacements? I mean, mm-hmm. there, there has somebody has to have, like, made this rule set go into place. And, like, who who's in charge? Yeah, so it's a lot of it is done at the provincial level. So their system, it's actually a little bit different from the ones that Sanders proposed, in that Sanders has proposed a national single-payer system. Um, he... And I understand politically this instinct. He doesn't think that states that did not expand Medicaid are going to run single-payer healthcare right. systems. In Canada, it is very much run at the provincial or, like, equal to a state level here in the U.S. And what they do is they use some kind of list to kind of set priority levels. So for something like a knee replacement, for example, um, I talked to some folks in Canada. There's, like, priority level one, two, three, and four. And you're using things about quality of life, like imminent harm, in my understanding, and like, if there are Canadians listening and I get this wrong, please tell me, it is a, it is a conversation between doctors, government officials, like to actually create, to decide what priority level people are at. And you actually, you know, so it's very different from the U.S. There's actually like a central authority at the provincial level that is giving criteria. Okay, here's like, what's a priority four? Here's what's a priority three. And then that is really going to determine, like, how long you wait for this procedure. So on an administrative level, it's more like Medicaid, where Mm -hmm. the federal government is providing money and setting standards, but the administration is in the hands of of provinces, and there's some variation in, in, like, how it works. It is pretty, and, and it's similar to Medicaid in that, like, the funding is split. I was talking to the premier of Ontario who told us, like, they pay 75, the federal government pays about 25%. And the benefits are a little bit different depending which province you live in. It kind of varies. There's a base level of benefits, but then it varies a little bit if you live in, like, Manitoba versus Prince Edward Island. So you could decide—the the provincial government could decide to, like— they could say, okay, we're here in British Columbia. We think some of the waiting times for cataract surgery are going too long. We're going to, like, kick in— extra money yeah. and get yeah. more They eye can surgeons. definitely do things like that. Or one of the things we talked about is there's a report that came out from this government agency in Ontario showing that the wait time for knee replacements, for priority four knee replacements, which are high priority ones, that it had gone up over the past year. So now Ontario is like looking at like how can we like, is there a release valve? And they think it's because they have an aging population and more people just need re- knee replacements. And I think that is something that is a benefit of a single-payer system. You can actually have this central body think about how to allocate resources. They can also change the benefit um, formula. One of the things Ontario is doing that um, hasn't happened in any province is right now Canadian healthcare doesn't include prescription drugs, which is, if you ask Bernie Sanders, like, what don't you like about Canadian healthcare? He'll say it's not generous enough. There's no coverage for dental or prescriptions. Starting in January, Ontario is going to start covering prescription drugs for people under 25. They'd like to go the whole way. They don't have enough money. So it really does give them a decent amount of authority to set their benefit package and to kind of allocate resources throughout the province. So one thing I I just would love to hear you talk a bit about, because it's something you've touched on already, but it's a big focus of your piece. I thought it was a really interesting thing to pull out, is that the Canadian, there's all this policy, right? There's all this policy in the Canadian system, all this policy in the American system, all this policy in, in Bernie Sanders's reform plan, his Medicare for all plan. But in Canada, the policy operates atop a certain kind of societal consensus that Sanders actually, I think, routinely identifies as like the real question we're, we're dealing with here. Um but I think doesn't always front load like, well, how are you going to get people there? Or do you want to just talk a little yeah. bit about this idea of equity and, and how Canadians feel about it versus how Americans feel about it? Yeah. So I think there's actually something Senator Sanders said on Sunday. He was giving this big speech at the University of Toronto. Um, and side note, it, it was impressive to me what a celebrity Bernie Sanders is in Canada. Students started lining up at 5 a.m. to get access to this lecture hall to hear Bernie Sanders speak. So he he got a very warm reception in Canada. Um, and, and there's this thing he said that I think is so crucial to the single-payer debate. He said, the most important point I want to make is that how a country chooses to provide health care for its citizens is not simply about the practice of medicine. It is about the core values as a nation. And I 100% agree with him there. I think that it really speaks to how you look at your values and how you think about 
what is important in the world as a government. And I think one of the debates that Canada has settled, but the United States has not, is whether it is the government's role to guarantee everyone access to health care. And in Canada, this feels like a settled debate. This is something Senator Sanders said to us reporters who were on the trip when, at the end of the day, we kind of asked him, well, what'd you learn on this tour? And he talked a little bit about how Canadian healthcare is innovative. But then he told us it was interesting to talk to patients who said, we believe healthcare is a right. I think if you walk down the street and you talk to people, they would find it inconceivable that somebody would not be able to get the healthcare they need because they don't have the money. And it seems like a pretty settled debate in Canada, but a pretty open question in the United States. And I think this is actually a place where Senator Sanders and I disagree a little bit. He, you know, says this is kind of the key question, but then he would follow it up saying, well, I actually think like most Americans agree with me that healthcare is a right. I think the polling that I was going through on this suggests that 50 to 60 percent of Americans agree that this is a right. And the reporting I've done in, you know, places like rural Kentucky suggests there's a decent number of people who who don't see healthcare as a right. This is also a great story by Atul Gawande that ran in The New Yorker on this topic a few months ago, where he was finding some of the same things, that there's a thought that is at least somewhat pervasive in areas of the country that healthcare is something to be earned. We've gotten used to the idea that you get healthcare when you get a job and that you you work hard and one of the rewards you get is a benefits package and your benefit package includes health insurance. And I don't know that we're there on this like fundamental question of is it the government's role to guarantee health care to everybody? And I definitely don't know that we're there in terms of like importing a system where everyone is in the same plan. There is no chance to buy out. I was actually just last night for um, a story that Dylan Scott and I are working on. We're running some focus groups around single payer health care. And last night we were with a bunch of kind of higher income Democrats in Bethesda, a pretty nice suburb here in D.C., and people were really, like, not digging the idea that there'd be no way to buy out of the system, that there'd be no way in Sanders' plan to buy better health care. They liked—it was funny. They kind of struggled with this tension ideologically where they felt like I should support a system where we're all in the same boat. But, like, for me, I want to make sure I can see my doctor, and I would pay extra money to do that. And I think, you know, before I went on this trip, I— as I often do, was thinking about all these policy questions like, oh, it would be disruptive and like, oh, it would change everything. But I think before you can even get to like the nuts and bolts of implementation, you, you really have to think about like, are we there? Uh, our, our healthcare system reflects our values. And right now our healthcare system reflects the value of being able to pay for better care. And I don't know if we're there on this idea of putting us all in the same system and saying like, yes, we will pay more as a government to make sure everyone has access to healthcare. I would go further on that, on what values our healthcare system reflects. So uh, a number of years ago, I went through a period of really researching pretty heavily. Why Why was America the only country that did not have the development of a national healthcare system of some kind? What, what, why, why did we become unique in that way? And there are actually a bunch of books on this, a bunch of academic studies of it. There are a lot of really good ones out there. But there are like four or five things that I think are interlocking here that are just in, useful to consider within this context. So one, one thing is we just have, I'll just bracket this, we have institutions that make it harder to pass big things. Harder than in a parliamentary system like Canada. That's one reason that a lot of things have failed over, over time. So, so that's true too. But I don't think that's a value so much as that is an institutional constraint. But America is very heavy and always, and has been forever basically on this distinction of the deserving and undeserving poor. It is very, very woven into our culture that there are the poor who are working hard and trying hard. If you went to Bernie Sanders's uh, campaign site during the election, you would see this big splash. It says nobody who works 40 hours a week should be in poverty. And even that had this, this sort of deserving poor idea in it, right? It wasn't that nobody should be in poverty, which I believe Sanders does believe, but the, the, the way you sell it in American politics is nobody working hard should be in poverty. Um, America's political system overwhelmingly um, and its development of a social safety net overwhelmingly has been structured by its racism. Um, it is just the case that a huge part of all this, when people think about solidarity, when they think about should healthcare be a right, is they think about 
paying for people who do not feel to them like they are like them. Um, and that structure is a tremendous amount of what's going on now. Donald Trump puts a lot of emphasis on immigrants, you know, using public services. Uh, there's just forever been a lot of ideas, you know, you go back to Obama phones, right? You know, Obama's free phones. There is a lot of, sometimes now it's submerged, sometimes it's not submerged. Historically, it's not been submerged at all. But America's development of social welfare programs that require a sense of solidarity has been impeded by our racial divisions, by our diversity. There is often not that fundamental sense of solidarity. And then finally, and I do think this shows up in that in the, the focus group you're talking about, Americans are just much more mistrustful of the government and also of taxation than comparable, you know, people of comparable incomes in other countries, in Canada and Great Britain and France. I mean, when you pull people on what the government does and how it does it and how they feel about taxes, Americans just feel very differently. And so we have a system that reflects deep skepticism about the government, deep skepticism about what the poor really deserve, particularly if they're not working, and deep skepticism, um, a, a real lack of social solidarity, particularly for, for non-white folks. I, I think you guys are running together two pretty different issues here, right? Like, the United States has a public taxpayer-financed healthcare system that delivers benefits to a large number of non-working poor people, right? Like, it's called Medicaid. It's not an uncontroversial thing, but it has existed for decades. When Tom Price wants to cut Medicaid, the way he sells that politically is by going on television and saying, I'm not cutting Medicaid. So there's like some level of social consensus that medical care that is needed should be delivered to people regardless of income. I think the top coding of the Canadian healthcare system, right, that, that you're talking about in your focus group, Sarah, like, that to me, I think, is a real sell, right? Like, Bernie Sanders' plans, like, have that feature. But when he talks, like, I think we all just know. Like, Bernie Sanders is not a policy guy. He's not a the-weeds listener, right? When he says healthcare should be a right rather than a privilege and people clap for him, the instinct that they are appealing to is that a person who is sick should get to go see the doctor and be taken care of, uh, regardless of their ability to pay. Not this, like, super wonky Canadian concern about, like, whether or not a rich person can go out of pocket and pay for something else. And it's important. I Like, I, I, I host this podcast. Like, it, it matters what your program actually says. But I, I think that on a level of values, like, there's a constant clash you know, in any country between, like, people would like to not pay taxes and people would like the government to provide more services. But I see really little evidence that there are people... I mean, I just... I, I listen to Republicans lie all day, all the time, about what they think about health care. None of them stands up and says, the way I think the system ought to work is that sometimes you get sick and then you just die because you're poor. Right? Like, no, nobody <laughs> no, defends but you, that there, position. there are policy positions often end up there. So like yes, on Medicaid, yes, the policy no, but, but, positions. But, that's, yeah. but we're talking about the consensus in society. No, but so in Medicaid, I actually think is an example of the opposite of what you're talking about. Because a lot of these states that have decided not to expand Medicaid, they don't just want to give Medicaid to poor people. Like in those states, Medicaid is restricted to pregnant women, to recent mothers, to people with disabilities. Like it is only those classes of people who we decide, oh, like, those people need help because they have a particular situation because they're having a baby and, like, we want to help that baby have a better start or they have a disability. I actually, like, look at the Medicaid system and I see a country that's super divided on this, like, deserving, undeserving, that the people who are disabled, the people who are pregnant, they're deserving. But if you're just, like, a poor person who's just poor, like, in a lot of states, they've made the decision, like, you don't deserve to have Medicaid. Um, I think in a lot of states, I mean, I just, I think you have to draw a distinction between, like, politicians want to keep taxes low, right? Versus, like, what, we don't see anyone right, but saying. But these tax things, these states would have gotten Medicaid for free. Right. Sure, but again, they. it's really telling when people lie about 
things. They lie about that. They, when they cut Medicaid, they lie about the fact that they're doing that. Nobody wants to repeal EMTLA, right? In fact, they say, oh, nobody dies in e- America. EMTLA is the... EMTLA. It's yeah. the, the requirement uh-huh. that emergency rooms provide free care to indigent yeah. patients, right? Like, there is, like, there is a profound tension between the absolute fanatical American commitment to not letting people die due to inability to pay and the dislike of having taxes in America. But I just like, I don't think, maybe Michael Cannon at Cato would be like willing to stand up and say, like my view is that if you don't earn enough money, you shouldn't get medical care even if you need it. But like nobody thinks that. I wanted to go back to one point you made because this is actually something I thought was really interesting in this focus group we did yesterday about this like skepticism and distrust of government One of the things that came up in these, we did two focus groups with eight people each, and what kept coming up was that it's getting, at the exact moment Democrats are expanding an expansion of government health care, their voters are actually getting much more skeptical of government. They are watching the Trump administration, and they're saying, like, I don't think I trust the federal government with an expansion of health care, that the Trump administration has made me much more skeptical, much more, you know, that it seems like it is creating this weird obstacle Maybe that reverses, like, you know, we're not going to see single payer in the Trump administration and maybe you get a Democratic administration and that skepticism kind of like goes down a little bit. But it was an obstacle I hadn't thought about before and something that seemed to really be a lot of we we had a like a discussion about, well, who decides the benefits? And a lot of people are like, well, I don't want the Trump administration to decide the benefits because they're not going to cover birth control. They're not going to cover abortions. And I think that is. Yeah, it seems an, reasonable. <laughs> that is an obstacle that becomes greater at the moment that Democrats are having this debate when you have a, a administration that is eroding trust in government. Although I do think Democrats would feel better about that if it were President Bernie Sanders or President Elizabeth Warren. I'll, I'll just make one point on, on this sort of whole conversation because I do think this is like a, a very interesting and actually an important conversation. But it's to say that people are divided within themselves. <laughs> it's not just that we're divided as a country. It's a all of us, um, for the most part, and particularly those of us who are not like professional political observers or actors. Uh, I'm actually reading an interesting book about ideological innocence. I, I can't remember the name of it right at the moment, but it's all about the ways in which it's actually very few people who have extremely coherent ideologies. It's a very, very small percentage of the population. Most people have a lot of warring impulses in them, and they're not primarily acting in, in politics, and, and so they don't like spend the time ironing out the internal contradictions. And you can think of us as having, like, different modules, right? Bernie Sanders, to, to Matt's point, is calling him a module that really does exist in most of us. This idea that, no, of course you shouldn't die if you don't have money for medical care. But there are also these other competing modules that get called up, right? Mistrust of, of other Americans, um, a resentment towards the undeserving poor and the stuff they're taking from you, a, a mistrust of the government, a desire not to pay high taxes. And then, of course, on the other side, fairness, solidarity, justice, compassion, right? Like, the, these things are all real. And they exist in all countries, but there is just overwhelming evidence and not just like survey evidence, but also just like look around evidence that in America, the blocking modules are just more powerful than they have been in other places. And we have a unique history and we have unique institutions and we've, you know, uh, evolved in our own way that that makes that true. We're we're a big country and, and we have our own culture. But I think we can get into you can get a mistake when you sort of try to imagine either countries or people as all one thing, right? Everybody's got a lot of competing impulses in them at all times. But in other countries, that impulse towards solidarity has often been able to win out. And part of it's because it has institutions that, that are able to go there. And I think that once you do implement these programs, they prove very hard to dislodge. Um, and also because they a lot of these other countries tend to be more homogenous and that leads to a greater sense of social solidarity. In America, these Mod- these other sort of modules that block a lot of stuff have won out over a long period of time. And I do agree with Sarah. Like, I look at the Medicaid story as a very different story than Matt does. I mean, I see a program that we, ver- in a lot of states, most states, harshly limited to very small classes of who we decided were the deserving poor. There was like this one moment finally of opportunity for Democrats. They like jammed this thing through. They got it through. Went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court like jam- like pulled it somewhat back. A ton of states decided to refuse huge amounts of free money in order to keep people from getting that that healthcare. And yes, they do like come out and they 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 
do lie about why they're doing it, but it's also a very, a very real revealed preference, right? I mean, it, it is showing something that they believe and that their political coalition is willing to believe and to back them up on. It's not like there's an, a counter argument being made here. And that counter argument is not usually proving um, quickly successful, although probably over time, if the, the match remained, it would. I just think this is like a, I think a, a useful way of thinking about this. And actually it's one of Sanders's great rec- realizations as a politician is just there is like a real philosophical war that has to be won on a lot of these things. And and one thing about Sanders is he frames his ideas philosophically, not technically. Um, Hillary Clinton comes out and, and will say like, you know, here's my plan for college tuition and like here's who it benefits and da, da, da. And so it's like free college. Like my view is free, like college should be free in this society. And Sanders engages philosophical fights more naturally than he engages policy fights. He's better at it. And I think he's more personally moved by it. And I think that the philosophical fight he is engaging here and the quotes you you gave out, Sarah, is sort of the right one, that a predicate to having a, sing, a system like the one he wants to have, like the Canadian system in this country, is actually moving the country towards this solidarity module and away from some of these others in a way that has not been successful overall yet. But, you know, um, it, it would be nice if it were, right? Uh, my, my view on this is actually much closer to Sanders. Uh, I'd be fine to allow some exit from the system the way France does, but philosophically, I'm very much where he is in terms of what, how we should think about healthcare in a society. But I think that it would be dangerous to assume that everybody else is too. Equally dangerous would be to not recommend your favorite podcasts to, to friends, colleagues, to not rate us uh, on, on iTunes and, and elsewhere, right? I mean, it's- To be everyone in the same system listening to the same Vox Media podcast. Can I, I'd like to recommend some podcasts, actually. Oh, so in addition, so the impact with Sarah Cliff has been fucking amazing. Yeah, can I tell? What is I this make, week's? This week is about one of my obsessions in American healthcare: the ubiquity of fax machines and why that happened. It turns out there's actually an Obama administration plan to kill the fax machine in medicine. It completely failed, and we kind of tell the story so of tragic. why. Why your doctor is always asking you to fax medical records in 2017. I also want to call out, um, so Todd Vanderwerf, I think you're interesting. Um, he had an interview this week with Russell Brand, the, the comedian, who's apparently currently in a graduate program about religion and culture and something and is becoming like an anarchist. And it was just a really, really interesting, unusual interview. Um, I do not share a lot of Russell Brand's views on things, but I found just like listening to him think through the world like way more, way more interesting than I had expected. So Todd thinks he's interesting. I thought it was interesting. I think you would think it's interesting. You should go check out I Think You're Interesting with Todd Vanderwerf. Um, and on my podcast this week, I have James Walner, who's a, a top former Republican Senate aide, worked for Jeff Sessions, for Pat Toomey, for Mike Lee, um, and has a pretty interesting theory about why we need more conflict in politics generally and Congress in particular, not less. And I think it's actually a pretty persuasive um, explanation of of what's gone awry in politics. And I think Weed's listeners would like it. Fantastic. So, you know, enjoy those podcasts. Uh, Thanks from us to to our producer, Peter Leonard. Uh, We'll be back with more Weed's on Friday.